Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning? We'll continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. The straight way we find that word very often in here means immediately. Thank you, dear. Um, means immediately. And um, like last week, Mark chapter 12, 13 to 17, like last week in our um, study together, this passage this morning, it presents a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, they had sent the big guns in on Jesus, if you remember that, the chief priests and scribes and elders. But here in verses 13 to 17, there's a different delegation that is sent to question Jesus. We're going to see, like has been the case before, their um, intent in questioning Jesus isn't to learn. It's to trick him and trap him into making a statement that they could use against him. And once again, as Jesus has masterfully done before, he gives them an answer that leaves them speechless, uh, but it also leaves them convicted uh, about their current rejection of him and his word. So let's read this passage together, Mark chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 13, and it says, And they send unto him, unto Jesus, certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, but Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus, answering, said unto them, And render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more before we study this verse by verse. God, we need you this morning. Uh, as, as we study your word, we need your Holy Spirit that's present in the lives of every single person who's trusted in you as Savior. Um, your Holy Spirit who may be working on any who, who haven't done that just yet. We need him to reveal the truth of your word to us. I need him to help me um, reveal the truth of your word here. And so we pray for his presence among us and that he meets with yielded, unobstructed hearts this morning. Drive your word deep into our heart that we might leave here this morning, not just better informed, but actually transformed by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verses 13 to the very beginning of verse 15, we're introduced to a a devious plan. Um, and we see its design. Verse 13 tells us who is sent to question Jesus. This time, uh, it's a different delegation. 
It's certain, as it says there, certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. This is a very specific subgroup of the religious leaders that we have seen uh, in conflict with Jesus Christ over the past few Sundays. You're probably familiar with the Pharisees, that strict legalistic sect of religious leaders in that day, who Jesus was often critical of because of their misapplication of God's word and their misuse of God's word in leading the people. But who are the Herodians? Well, they were associated with the Pharisees theologically uh, or religiously for the most part, uh, but not politically, <laughs> not politically, because they supported King Herod's rule underneath Roman rule, and that was a problem for the Pharisees. Um, it was a problem for really any of the conservative elements of religious leadership and in Jewish society in general. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, when there's a hatred for God, it often makes strange bedfellows, doesn't it? People who hate each other, uh, or disagree with each other, they will come together uh, in order to try to obstruct God and God's will and, and God's word. And verse 13 tells us that this, this specific delegation here was sent to Jesus as part of a devious plan. It says at the end of verse 13, what their whole motive was, it was to catch Jesus in his words. They would give him a loaded trick question with the intent that, that Jesus would be forced to say something that would be offensive or maybe even treasonous to one of the opposing sides. Pharisees were one side. Herodians were another, to one of the opposing perspectives. It says the word catch is used here. At the end of verse 13, the Greek word is agruo, and it literally means to capture or take by hunting. We've got some hunters in this church, and the season's coming up here. I saw a deer yesterday, and I saw deer corn for sale. This idea here, they were trying to catch him. They are trying to hunt him. Their question wasn't posed for informative reasons but to use whatever Jesus would say as a response to indict him. And if you watch any source, really, of what has now become news in our day and age, which is honestly nothing but people's editorial opinion on one end of the spectrum or another, you see this happening all the time. People trying to catch others with their words. If you're on social media, you will experience this dynamic as well. You may have. I saw a post recently uh, a meme that sarcastically joked about this reality. It said, how social media works. I post, I prefer mangoes to oranges. And some person comments, so basically what you are saying is that you hate oranges. No, I just said I prefer mangoes to oranges. You also failed to mention pineapples and, and bananas and grapefruits. Such a bigot. Educate yourself. Isn't that kind of what we experience so often? And so with a devious desire here, according to verse 13, with a plan uh, to take a statement, any statement Jesus was going to make as a response and twist it, or even just take it at face value to turn the people against him and turn the political leaders against him, verse 14 reveals additional aspects of his plan. It says, and when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and you care for no man, for you regard not the person of men. But you teach the way of God in truth. There's a lot of deceit there, isn't there? That's part of this devious plan. Listen to what they say, or really, really how they say it, or why they say it in this question posed to Jesus. Master, 
It simply means teacher. This is what he was. Don't take it for more than what it really means. In no way did they see him as their master. Master, we know that you are true and that you care us for no man. What do they mean by this? Well, they're deceitfully flattering Jesus. They're attempting to get him to let down his guard by insinuating they are supportive of him or on his side. They're saying, Jesus, we know everything that you say is true. And you, you never say anything that's untrue because of who you're talking to. That's the carest for no man part. Now, was what they said deceitful? I mean, not in and of itself, right? Everything they said was true. Uh, they were correct. Every word ever spoken by Christ, true. Uh, n- nothing but truth. Jesus never said something or didn't, didn't say something just because of who he was talking to. That cares for no man, uh, literally in the Greek, it means you do not look on the face of men. And that Jesus never said something or never did not say something just based on the reaction of who he was talking to. Everything he said was true. Everything he said was out of love and always without concern for how their reaction and facial expression or otherwise might affect his future, speaking the truth in love. So it's not what they said that was deceitful. Really, it's why they said it. They said a truth, but in doing it, they spoke a lie because they did not believe what they were saying. There's a powerful lesson for us right there. We, we can be literally speaking truth, but still being deceitful and being deceived if we truly don't believe what we're saying ourselves. End of verse 14 and the very beginning of verse 15, it gives us the critical question that they're coming to Jesus with as part of their devious plan. They say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? And what they're asking Jesus here, is it the right thing to do in God's sight to pay the poll tax to Rome that the Roman government demanded of every single Jew? And continuing on in 15 and 16, we see Jesus' discerning perspective. He identifies their motive as Jesus prepares to answer their question. And like before, and like is typical in Jewish scholastic debate, Jesus often answers their question with another question that he gives them. The deceit involved in their devious plan is reinforced once again by the statement in the middle of verse 15 where it says, but he, but Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy. And listen, we could probably halt the sermon right now and go straight to an invitation simply for this reason. Many people came to Christ. Many people still come to Christ. And all of them. Every one of us, in some way or another, is a hypocrite. Or we were a hypocrite. Or we're still fighting hypocrisy. But those who came to him with a genuine desire to to be delivered from sin and its penalty of death, this eternal separation from God and hell, those who came to him with a genuine desire for that, at some point they laid down their hypocrisy. I pray you have. I pray there's been a time in your life when you saw what Jesus offers you and you laid down any hypocrisy and you humbly came to Christ to receive him as your savior. A time when you evicted pride and you embraced God's amazing grace to you. 
I don't know why you came here this morning. I don't know why anyone comes. I don't know motives. Um, but this I know. If you have come and there's a spirit of hypocrisy in your heart, like is exemplified by these religious leaders, every single one of us would be doing well to evict it right now. Jesus knew their heart and motive. He knew their deceitful plan, their devious plan. He knew their hypocrisy, and he always knows when there's even a little part of it in our lives, not just on Sunday morning, but on Wednesday mornings and Friday evenings. Galatians 6, 7 reminds us, it says this, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. He knows. Psalm 139, 1 through 6, God has David clearly tell us there that God searches us and God knows us. He's familiar with all of our ways. It says, before a word gets from here to the tip of our tongue, he knows it all together already. And for David, in that context of that psalm, Psalm 139, this was a wonderful reality for David. It wasn't something that caused him to live in fear or guilt. He was glad that he served a God who knew him and who searched him and who knew what he would say before he even said it. But it it's only a comforting reality about God if we have evicted any and all hypocrisy and if by his grace we have humbly bowed in faith. It's then we can cry out like David does at the end of Psalm 139. We could say, search me, oh God, please do that. I welcome that, God. I want you to see if there be even any little wicked way in me. Bring it to my attention so that based on your grace, I can evict it. I can confess it. I can turn from that sin. I can be made new. I can walk in newness of life now. I can have eternal life with you forever by living in the obedience of faith. And David says at the end of Psalm 139, lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. Knowing their hearts, just like Jesus knows our hearts, even at this moment, Jesus now responds to their question. Verse 15, he says, why do you tempt me? Why do you tempt me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. Here his message is initiated. He asks him for a penny, actually a denarius. In 1611, King James, they called it a penny. I don't have a penny. Krista gave me a quarter. I was supposed to bring my 50-cent piece. I got a 50-cent piece that's special to me at home, but I forgot it, so we'll have to do with a, a quarter. But Jesus asked for the coin, the coin they were talking about, what the poll tax was for. A denarius is... It's a day's wage. It was one coin. For the average worker of the day, it was a whole day's wage. Once a year, they would have to give it to a Roman official and paying tribute to Caesar. So one of, them, one of the people there, they comply with Christ's request. They bring him the coin, and there a powerful object lesson begins. In verse 16, Jesus asked them in order to answer their question, whose image is on this coin? So I got a quarter. Whose image is on there? George Washington, good. Some of you know that. All right. It says a lot of other things. Ours says, in God we trust. And liberty. It says a quarter dollar. This one's a state one, I think. It's pretty dirty, Krista. <laughs> yeah. North Dakota. All money is dirty. Um, Theodore Roosevelt says North Dakota 2016. That coin Jesus had said a lot of things too. Had an image on it as well. Jesus says, whose image and whose name is on this coin? That's what he asked them. That's an easy answer. 
They were like, well, Jesus, you're not much of a master, a teacher, a rabbi as we thought you were. It's Caesar's. It's Caesar's, Jesus. Actually, Tiberius Caesar Augustus. He is the current Roman emperor. And then surrounding his image on the coin, or I don't know, maybe on the backside, I've never seen a denarius, but somewhere else on that coin were these words. This was the superscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, and pay attention to this part, son of the divine Augustus. Now you see where there's a problem here now? They just said that Tiberius Caesar Augustus, either he's divine or he might be divine, but definitely his daddy was. Um, This is where the deceit and trickery and this hunt to capture Jesus in his words, where it comes into play. If Jesus had answered, yeah, you need to pay a poll tax. Um, It's a responsibility you, you have to your government. They protect us, you know, and they do things for us. You're supposed to pay the tax. Well, if he had said that, well, then the people, the Pharisees especially here, they would have rejected him because of what was said on that coin, because of their antagonism toward Roman rule, especially because of that word divine. It could infer that any, anybody who used that coin, especially to, to pay tribute to Caesar in this tax, that they were assenting to what the coin said, that he was divine, um, that Caesar was God. And no, no devout religious Jew could do that. They could not conceive of a Messiah, the one that was promised to deliver them from what this rule, this oppression. There's no way the Messiah could do that in their estimation. And Jesus said, no, it's, if he had said it's idolaters, if he would have agreed with them. It is idolatry to do that. If Jesus would have answered that way in paying this tax, well, then the Herodians, the other religious leaders, they could have taken Christ's response straight to the officials and had him accused of treason and sedition. We know that's what they did anyway at the end of this week. So once again, with a very discerning perspective, Jesus answers in a marvelous way. That's what it says at the end of verse 17. It not only destroys their their devious plan, but it brings out a way more important truth for them, for the rest of those listening, and even for you and I here this morning to understand. It's a distinguishing principle that is presented by Jesus Christ. He gives them a basic answer at the beginning of verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When he says, whose image is on this? And the answer is Caesar's. He's implying that if Caesar's image is on it, if Caesar's writing is on it, well, who does it belong to? Caesar. It's Caesar's. So give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Pay the tax. Honor the government that God has sovereignly instituted over you. This is no violation of God's law. You see this supposed dilemma they came to Jesus with? It was honestly, it was a straw man argument. It was a false dilemma. Nowhere in scripture does it command us to not pay a tax. Nowhere are we told not to honor the laws of our land we live in unless they violate God's law. That wasn't the issue here outside of their human interpretation their legalistic building a fence around the law that the Pharisees so often did, their man-made doctrines. But Jesus didn't just want to leave it there. He saw this great opportunity to teach them a way more powerful truth that he just couldn't pass up seizing. So he also gives them the big answer. 
And that's really the whole point. Don't stop at render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's in verse 17 because that's not really even the point in this passage. What we need to zoom in on, what we need to allow God's Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts with this morning is what follows. Render to God the things that are God's. Render in Greek is apodote, and it, it means to give up, <laughs> to give up, to give back to, to restore, to return. If that coin is Caesar's, give it up to him. Give it back to him. Return it to him. Restore it to him. And let's now insert the intended object lesson to the second part. Render it to God, That's which is God's. So whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? Can we go back to the beginning for the answer? I mean, all the way back to in the beginning. Genesis 1.27, what does it say? So God created man in his image. In the image of God created he man, male and female, created he them. Whose image is on you? It's God's. Well, then so what? What's Jesus teaching us here? Render, apodote. Give up to God what is God's. Give back to God what is God's. Render, restore to God what is his, what he owns. Have you done that? Have you ever come to Jesus Christ for, for salvation knowing, wow, my whole life I never heard this, this blessed gospel truth that Jesus died for my sins on the cross, the, the penalty that was mine for sin, death forever in hell. I don't have to face that because of what he did for me. Simply by believing in him, by, by receiving him as my savior, by putting my trust in what he did on that cross, I can walk in newness of life now and I can have eternal life forever. If you've never done that, if you've never given back to God what is his, what he redeemed, as we just sang a few moments ago, I invite you to do it this morning. To cry out to him in prayer. You don't have to wait till we have an invitation. Do it now. Cry out to him in prayer, just silently from your heart. Tell him, I'm a sinner, but I know you pay for my sins. I want you to forgive him. The blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from them. I trust in you and you alone to be my savior and to give me eternal life. You who have done that already, you have given yourself back. You've received Christ as Savior. You returned, you restored, you gave to him what you owed him. You've been saved. Whose image is on you, Christian? Whose image is on you? The reason I ask you that is because I've experienced this. There's times in my life when I've taken something back that I gave to God. Some area I might have roped off and said, I know I said I gave you everything, but I need this right now. I can't yield it to you. Some area in my life where I've said in word or, or maybe in deed, I said, nah, that's, that's not yours, God. Whose image is on you? Colossians 3.10 lets us know whose it's supposed to be. It says, put on the new man. That's what you have done. When you have come to Christ, you're given newness of life, and you're to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him? Whose image is on you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And listen, you are not your own. 
whose image is on you. Render to him whose image is on you. You are bought. You're bought with a price, it says in that verse. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Who or what owns you? By how you think? By what you say? By how you live? Is it God? Because the reality is his image is on us. Every single person here made in the image of God. According to Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single one of us has the image of God on us. Those he's inviting to come to him for salvation for the, maybe the first time, his image is on you. Those of you who have been saved, but maybe you've taken back or roped off some area where we've said, it's not yours, not yet, God. We're going to just have a song of invitation. As we sing, sing it as a prayer to him, where you're putting your faith, what you're giving back to him. Won't you render it this morning, whatever it is? Uh, won't you leave here this morning with every part of you given back, given up, restored, returned to the one who bought you at such a, a high cost, to the one who owns you, to the one whose image is on you? It's his. It's his. Give it back to him. No more delay. It's time to obey.